Amen. Um, well, um, last week, uh, Pastor Joshua spoke on speaking peace. Um, speaking peace, just like I'm speaking, but it's not very peaceful because you're hearing microphone sounds. Is that better? We're good? Okay. Um, and uh, it was a great word. Uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. it. It's interesting. I don't know if you followed sort of the way this progression was, but, you know, we had felt back in August that we wanted to do a, a, a sort of a joint, uh, uh, you know, home group slash sermon theme, and, and we really felt like it was peace because there's so much chaos in the world. And, uh, and if we can receive the peace of Jesus in here, then we can begin to share it in here, and then we can bring it out there. And so that's been the progression uh, and so um, today, we're, we're launching off from speaking peace to seeking peace. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, talking to, I was talking to somebody after the sermon last week, and, and then in home group, and we we're talking about how peace can feel like a very passive topic. And in fact, it can seem, if you're like, man, I want to be a peacemaker, that can actually seem like a really um, kind of squishy, non-committal thing. Like, I just kind of don't want to deal with any of the hard stuff and not take a stand. So people will accuse you of that sometimes or think that's what being a peacemaker is. But what we're trying to do here is something beyond. If, if you're talking about peace as laid down in the scriptures, peace is not passivity. Peace is shalom. It's wholeness. It's completeness. It's health. It's all the broken places, whole. So as, we're, as this is the way of peace, this is what we're seeking, for us, uh, starting with our own hearts, and then for our family, and then for the community. Wholeness. Wherever there's brokenness, wholeness. And that cannot be passive. It must be active must be active, and we can't expect that it's going to be comfortable either. We talked last week about the Beatitudes and the one particular uh, thing that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And when you look at the Beatitudes, as Dallas Willard points out, and I love to quote here, it's one of my favorite things, that the Beatitudes aren't like, Jesus isn't putting this thing up saying, you should be persecuted for my sake, you know, or these different uh, uh, things that he's portraying here. What, he's speaking a blessing to each one of these groups. He's speaking a blessing uh, to, to groups that, that are poor in spirit, that are hungry and thirsting for righteousness and not receiving it. He's speaking a blessing to those who are persecuted because the kingdom of God touches all of them. And that applies here too. The peacemakers, the kingdom of God touches them because being a peacemaker is not a particularly fun thing to be. Contrary to being this squishy, easy thing where you don't have to take a stand, if you're an actual peacemaker, well, Willard gives the example of a, a police officer responding to a domestic violence call. And when he steps into that heated environment, when husband and wife might be going at it and he's trying to step in between them and stop what's going on, that is what a peacemaker has to do to step in between, to step into that difficult space and try to bring wholeness. Romans 12, bless those who persecute you, 
Blessed, do not curse them. Ooh, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. With all people. The hard thing is, our culture is very fond of us versus them. We have divided society. It's divided in different ways, you know, class divisions. You've got rich versus poor, elite versus working class, college educated versus non-college, all those kind of things. You push that far enough, you wind up with an us versus them mentality. Of course, it happens in politics. We know that because just two weeks ago, there was an election. Don't know if you guys heard anything about that. Haven't seen anything about it on the news. Weird. And here's what happens. All the different major news outlets and blogs or whatever, they've all got their thing they're trying to push. And so they end up selling fear. They end up selling division. They end up selling accusation. And if you start following that blog, guess what? Your phone's going to give you more of that kind of thing. And we end up, we end up in this place where it, it, there's this massive red versus blue division. And this year, it feels like it's worse than I've ever seen it or felt it. And it's really unfortunate. Guys, I think that every four years, as a, as a country, we lose our collective minds. I really do. Now, I just looked this morning to see how many votes were cast, and there were like over 150 million people voted this year. That is incredible. That is a, an insane amount. And it's a privilege, it's, an, a one, it's a wonderful thing to be able to vote. It's what a blessing it is. So most people throughout human history have not had that blessing, and to be able to make that decision is beautiful. But I think that we have found a way to take that privilege and to make it something huge and gigantic, way beyond reason. For example, I was talking to my dad last night. Now, my dad voted for somebody different than I voted for, yet we still love each other. He was telling me, unfortunately, he has some people on his side of the family that have completely shut him out of relationship because of who he's voting for. And I... I started getting upset. I said, Dad, this makes no sense. This is so silly to me. I know voting is important. I know elections are important. But 150 million people voted. That means your vote was one 150 millionth of a, of a decision. Now, I don't know how many of you guys know math. But one 150 millionth is a very, very small number. Very small. Statistically speaking, Dad, your vote was like, you know, statistically speaking, like almost zero. And I don't say this to like make us feel like, oh, we don't have a vote. We do have a vote. We do have a voice. But unfortunately, our country is huge. Our country has like over 300 million people. That's like a little bit more than this. 
That's so many people. That means the actual amount of power we have every four years to do this important thing is tiny. It is so small, yet we, what, what do we do? We hold on to it like it's the most important thing about our identity. Who did you vote for? Well, how dare you? How dare you use your 150 billionth vote differently than I use mine, Mr. Star? <laughs> how could you? You see what happens? Relationships end up breaking off. Our whole concept of the world gets so binary, it's either my side or your side. It's us versus them. You guys, I want to say that's way out of whack. Presidential politics, national politics has far too much real estate in our minds and our hearts. Thank you. Here's the thing. We can do that with church too. Us versus them. We can make us versus them out of all kinds of things. I was raised in Tyler, Texas. Tyler, Texas, at least when I was growing up, had I think more churches per capita than any other city in the country. Um, Like it had, I don't know, something like 150,000 people in city limits and like 600 churches. No exaggeration. It was insane. So when I grew up, I sort of was in this us and them versus thing. Like, I, my mindset was like, there's us, the good guys, and there's the world, the bad guys, the public school teachers. <laughs> With the irony there is they're all Christians too. But I didn't know that then. You know, it was us versus them, and it was just like, ooh, we're always trying to have this cultural thing, and it's very unfortunate. And what the results of that, there were no good results there just made me feel like I was superior and somebody else feel like they were superior. No good results there. There's no shalom being built. There's just opinions flying at other opinions and everybody making a mess. I realized later that I had some real assumptions that weren't really true. (laughs) One, that, well, if you love Jesus, you're automatically going to love your neighbor and know how to do things better than someone who doesn't. That's not necessarily true. When I get on a plane and I hear the captain, I don't go ask him if he has accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm more interested to make sure that he knows how to fly the plane. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, but I don't know why we would have this view, like with government or like all these different things. Like, it's like, there are really, there are people of faith and there are people maybe who don't have faith, but have wisdom and have love for their neighbor. There are people of goodwill, even Jesus acknowledged that, right? There's people of goodwill out there. And, and, but when you have an us versus them, you can't, there's no room for that. It's all just binary. You know what I'm saying? So that was an unfortunate thing. Now, when the scriptures talk about us making shalom, about being peacemakers, I believe it's telling us to cut down the dividing wall, the us versus them. Now, it doesn't mean abandoning your convictions. Please hear me. It does not. It does mean abandoning contempt because contempt for your neighbor is to have no place with the people of Jesus. I don't care if if your neighbor disagrees with everything you believe in. They're still created in the image of God. I was, um, when I first came on staff here, 
What I saw happening with One Hope and with what had happened up in Portland, so many of these things, my heart was moved because it was so very different and it was so very inspiring. And I want to revisit that. Is that okay? Can I just like remind you guys of what I, I went and revisited this this weekend I, I, just to, as a refresher. And, and um, it, it started in 2008. In 2008, the, the, the Palau organization, Luis Palau and his association up there, um, they you know, do stuff all around the world and, and preaching the gospel and working with churches. So they're up in Portland, which is like, you know, of course, the most progressive city in the country or something. And, and uh, he's got like 100 different pastors and church leaders, and they say, look, we need to love our city better. Like right now, everyone just looks at the church and is like, there's one narrative. They're like, just, they're against us. There's this us and them thing, and they wanted to tear down the us and them. And so they said, you know what we should do is let's go talk to the mayor and let's ask him what he would want help in. <laughs> it's a really novel idea. So Kevin Palau and some of the other representatives, they go into the mayor's office. Now the mayor is not a believer, not even close. In fact, it has some like real suspicion, hostility toward the church. And they walk in and they say, Mr. Mayor, what would you do with 100 and, or excuse me, with, with 15,000 volunteers? If, if, if you had 15,000 Christians that could just show up and serve the city, what would you do with them? And at, he, at his, his mind's like, he's at first suspicious, and then he's like, would that even be legal? Like, what would we do with... But finally, they work it out. He realizes, no, these guys are serious. They want to have a weekend where 15,000 Christian volunteers can come and just help wherever he wants them to help. So his mind's like, <clears throat> so he lists some things. He's, he's thinking about issues really that are justice issues today, right? That they would call like, man, there is some like homelessness, there is hunger, um, and maybe we can get people working over here with these homeless people, and maybe over here like with this food bank. And there's like education, maybe we can get people over here in this school. So he's laying this stuff out. Well, the day comes, the churches have been preparing, and they do not have 15,000 volunteers. They have 28,000 volunteers. 28,000. And they go to work all around the city, and the mayor is just, like, astounded. My favorite part of this is not the fact that this is how CityServe started up and how this is now this spilled all over Portland and down here into One Hope in, in where we are and all over, really all over the world. This is a movement now. Um, but it, my favorite part is what happened at Roosevelt High School. There's a documentary, write this down, it's called Undivided. Um, it used to be on Netflix. Apparently it's on imdb.com um, for free. Check this documentary out. It's amazing. It, it's the story of what happened here. Okay? So here, let, let me give it to you in brief. Spoiler alerts here. Um, what, what happened was there was one particular school, Roosevelt High School, that was overrun with crime, with poverty, gang violence, all of this stuff. And so the, the, the mayor is pointing specifically. He's like, man, Roosevelt really needs help. So there was one large church in Portland that said, okay, we got that one. Give us that one. And so, my microphone is stuck. There we go. So, they send hundreds of their people to Roosevelt High School on this day. And that day, when you have hundreds of volunteers going to one school, you can get a lot done. They gave this place an absolute makeover. 
I mean, they cleaned the place from top to bottom, the classrooms, they painted hallways, they, they did all new landscaping. It was amazing, like they blew the place out and stepped back at the end of the day and went, wow, that's kind of awesome. Do you see what we just did together? And they said, well, we, we can't stop here. And so they started talking to the principal and the superintendent. What else can we do? Well, they found out that, you know, some of the details of these poverty issues and some of this stuff they were dealing with. And they said, look, some of our students don't even have coats. They come in and they're freezing. And And a lot of our students, they go home and they don't have any parents there. Aunts and uncles are gone and all this stuff is going on and they don't like eat regularly, maybe once a day. And so the church went to work. And the church decided, we can open up a food pantry right here for the students in the school. So they always have something to eat, and they did. And they opened up, they took another room, and they made it into basically a clothing store for the students. And they started getting donations from all around the city. Some new coats, some very nice used coats, and and sweaters, and jeans, and all these things. So it was like this, this clothing store. A kid could just come in for free, get outfitted. And of course, then students need help. They need tutoring. They, they need mentoring. And, and the, the church just keeps going and they keep loving. And eventually, the school principal's like, okay, can we just open up an office for your church here in our building? <laughs> the, the school asked the church to have an office in their building. Like, what in the world? This isn't supposed to happen. So uh, things, guys, it just, it just keeps unfolding. It just keeps unfolding. And pretty soon, Nike sees all this transformation in the school, and Nike says, hey, we want in on that. <laughs> maybe, we could build a, maybe we could put a, a new football field. So Nike comes in and puts in a, 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 a like state-of-the-art turf field in there for it. Everybody wants in on it. That is an example of what happens when the church puts aside us and them. It was such a radical success that the superintendent of the public school system, the Portland public school system, asked this. They said, could we get a church for every single one of our schools? Could we have a church partner for all of our Portland schools? The public school system in Portland, Oregon, asked for the church to come in and help. Do you guys see what an amazing thing that is? And, and, And it's happened. And things have spilled out and, and, well, you guys, they've come here. As they began to spread what was going on and see this as a model, well, right now, you know, we took their, their, their day of service and we started Project Hope specifically to bless the public school systems. And now, you know, there are 30 different schools around Lane County that have a church partner. Do you know that we Christ Center sometimes get calls from our public schools asking for stuff. Hey, I don't know if you guys can do this, but we're thinking about putting on this event. We didn't know who else to call, so we thought we'd call the church. That's amazing. And that's not because we have people in our congregation that are on staff or on the school board. It's because we have reached out as a congregation and as the body of Christ. In other words, we tore down the suspicion and, and, and we refused to play the us and them game. It doesn't matter if there are ideological differences we might have with people who, you know, make the curriculum or whatever, or even who are a part of the school. That's not the point. The point is they are made in the image of God and they are serving our children. 
So rather than viewing them as the other, we say, no, this is all our problem. This is our responsibility. This is our community. As a result, the stuff that's happening in our own backyard is beautiful. I can't help but think about every child. I remember when Joshua came back from a meeting from, uh, uh, with some of the guys who started every child up in, up in Portland. He said, my mind is blown right now. He said, these guys, here's what, here's what they, they, they said. They said, you know, so many people want to be involved in stopping human trafficking or in helping kids get out of gangs or this systemic cycle of poverty of not having parents and it leads to crime and it leads to teenage pregnancy and all of these things and it keeps people in poverty. They said, if you want to affect these areas, get involved in foster care because this is all downstream from that. And that's what they started to do. And they are radically transforming the whole foster care system up in Portland. And it spilled down here. And now every child, of course, was born a few years back and it continues to grow. And we're able to champion that and be a part of that. This is peacemaking. This is, is making shalom. It's an opportunity that we have as followers of Jesus to refuse the cycle of contempt, to refuse to other a person or a group of people and say, no, we're all in this together. You're made in the image of God and, and we are going to show you that. We're going to prove it to you by the way that we treat you. A couple years ago, I was coming back from hanging out with Aaron and Hannah and the college group they asked me to come hang out with the college guys sometimes because they needed some extra hip. <laughs> um, that is not the case, but I was with them. And, uh, and it was late, like Saturday night, maybe 11 o'clock, and I'm walking home and I'm living like four blocks away, and, and I hear somebody yelling. I'm like, what was that? And I didn't see, so anyway, I just keep walking and I turn the corner and I've got like a block to go and then I hear more yelling and I see this lady who's just very, very upset. And I think at first she's in, in trouble, like maybe she's yelling at somebody next to her. And as I keep going, I don't see anyone else. I see that she's looking directly at me. And I'm like, whoa. Um, and I get close enough and, and she says, stop following me. And I'm just looking, my house is like right across the intersection. <laughs> And I'm like, are, are, you talking to, are you talking to me? And she was so angry. I, I didn't know, honestly, if she was like going to pull a knife or what. It was really weird. And I, I'm like, I'm not following you. You're not following me? No. And she's like, you're not with the FBI? <laughs> and I say, no. And then she looks around and she's like, I'm so sorry, sir. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she crouches down like this and begins to weep. And I realized really quickly, okay, she's got some chemicals in her bloodstream. This is quite evident. I, don't, I haven't been around this much, but I know that, uh, you know, some of, these, some of these harder drugs will make you super paranoid. And, and so I'm sitting next to her not knowing what to do. I just kind of crouch down next to her. 
And I wished for a second I could be more like Mark Wall, who always knows what to do when someone's crying. Mark Wall, the big teddy bear. I don't see it. I'm just sitting going, I don't know what to do here. So I just say to her, um, do you need help? Is there anything I can do? And she just, she can't put words together. And, and uh, I said, where do you live? And she remembers that she lives between these two streets. So I said, let me, let me, can I just take you home? And so we're walking together and she doesn't even remember exactly the, the address, but she gets there and she sees her home and she finally, she finally goes inside and, and she's okay and she's safe. I don't tell you that story to tell you something good that I did. I walk all over this town all the time. Like it's, it is no sacrifice for me to walk somebody home. You guys see me walking all over the place. I know because you always honk at me and I don't know who you are. <laughs> so many times someone will honk and I won't see who they are. I just see their car and a hand up like that. I'm like, yeah! <laughs> it, was, it was nothing for me to do that. I tell you that story for this reason. She thought I was the enemy. And then she saw that I wasn't. And then shalom could come. Do you see? When you think someone's the enemy, there's no progress that can be made. And I kind of think right now, what we have in our country is a lot of people are hopped up on a lot of stuff, on a lot of fear. They're hopped up on partisanship. They're hopped up on suspicion. They're hopped up on conspiracy. And what that's doing is convincing them that there's enemies, enemies, enemies. And sometimes that does it with the church too. There's enemies, enemies, enemies. What I wanna tell you is that the community is not our enemy. Our neighbors might have a different sign for a different candidate in their front yard and they are not the enemy. Our neighbors might have an ideology that's very much opposed to ours, and I want to tell you, they are not the enemy. Jesus, when he walked the earth, had people whose views of the world were far more divergent from his than ours are to us. He was in a much more violent, vitriolic age than we are, and he threw his doors open And he partied with Pharisees and tax collectors and prostitutes. And he opened the doors and he loved each and every one of them and never treated them like the enemy. And that is our great privilege to follow in his footsteps and to see the one, not to see the label, not to see what group they've put themselves in, not to think of them as, well, that's a person that voted for that other guy. But to see something so much greater than how you spend one in 150 millionth of a decision. If you're created in the image of God, you deserve to know this is our job. To make peace, to make shalom, to refuse contempt, and to throw our doors open to the individuals who we might not trust at first. This is where my great hope is, guys. My great hope is that even though things have been dark, (laughs) 
And even though there's all kinds of uncertainty, even this week, I know, we know. You know what? There's hope because Jesus is on the move. His spirit is on the move. And beautiful things are happening right all around us. Do not buy into the us and them narratives. Do not buy in. We are not. We are not at war with one another. We're all just really, really stressed out. That's understandable. But we fix our eyes on the Prince of Peace, and we walk together, not alone. We walk together. And together we affirm the image of God and the dignity of every human being around us. If you want to be an activist, you want to be someone who's motivated and acts on justice, I want to ask you, focus on where your power actually is, because it's probably not in Washington. Do you know what I mean? And I'm not saying don't push or encourage legislation. I'm not saying don't use a hashtag. I'm saying don't have faith in a hashtag. Don't have faith there. You're probably not going to make much difference there whatsoever. But you know where you will? Right here. You will in your own community. You will in your own backyard. You will with a person across the street. That's where justice actually, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's not all big. It's not all out there. It's not all red versus blue. Who's going to win this thing? What if we just took that energy that we have and put it into loving our actual neighbors? That's how you make shalom. And that's what, that's what I long to see with our community. And I think we're already on this path. I just want to invite us to revel in it and to take joy in it, and to just determine we are gonna be people who make shalom in this community. Yeah. Amen? Let's stand together.